listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. You know I'm a big fan of the 80s, and back when MTV came out, it was the summer of me going into my senior year of high school. So we're at the age where we're, we're having summer fun, drinking beers, doing all the bad things 17-year-olds do, and someone said there was a music video station, and we had seen a few you know, videos on a certain station on New Jersey cable played some different songs, but we never saw full videos, like, all the time. And we thought the guy was lying. And we went to his house, and he, and he put on the TV, and we were like, holy crap. And it was all these bands that we had known, but we really didn't know. And there was five original VJs. There was J.J. Jackson, there was Mark Goodman, there was Martha Quinn, there was Nina Blackwood, and there was my guest, who's on today. And my guest was the one I always thought was the coolest, because we both had light hair, he dressed real cool, all the girls in my neighborhood loved him, and I was like, this guy, this guy has the job. And my guest today is Alan Hunter. How you doing, Alan? My God, what an introduction, man. Thank well, you. Dude, it was it was amazing, though, because you were like, for me, like, you know, we all associated with different guys, like the tall, dark hair guys associated with Mark Goodman. You know, yep. us, us blonde, light hair guys were like, hey, that guy, we like Alan Hunter. When you look back, do you really think how many people you've touched from my generation? I'm 56. Do you ever think how many people you've touched and were part of their lives? Well, if I think about people I've touched, I certainly don't admit it, uh, especially in this day and age. That's not cool. But to your point, by the way, Mark Goodman, who looks big on screen, he's about three feet tall. Okay. He's a very small fellow. And I look... I look a little shorter. I'm actually taller. So there I look, you know, I think that we are reminded all of us have this conversation all the time about people who come up to us and particularly in the last, you know, five, six years, if you haven't noticed the eighties are hot again. So when we go on these eighties events on a cruise or we go to a land event lately, there've been a lot of those in the past couple of years. I mean, you know, people that uh, come up to us to talk about how their lives um, and uh, how their lives went during the 80s and how we were part of the backdrop of their lives. I think it's pretty, it's not daunting anymore. I just take it as a reality that we were the backdrop for people's daily life because we were there all the time. I don't really, you know, I don't, uh, um, I'm not arrogant enough to think it was me or my talent or whatever. And I think my VJ pals think the same. We were just on all the time in people's background their life and so of course we they would have fond memories of us or not now for you how did the whole path start you wanted to be did you i know you got majored in psychology i believe and then you got into acting how did what was your goal when you were a high school alan hunter and going into college what were your goals i was kind of a hybrid back in the day when you could do a lot of things and not be pegged in a click you know i was a jock i loved football and baseball i was really a good sports star in high school but i also did theater and choir you know you could do everything you didn't have to find your niche uh, nowadays everybody specializes even at a young age so for me i mean when i got out of col uh, high school went to college i majored in psychology because i couldn't think of anything else to do to be honest uh and i and i liked the study of the mind i really did i, I like knowing about people and I, i've always been sort of a natural you know, listener, um, at some point I thought, well, I'm really going to wear a lab coat and uh, shock rats and do experiments. <laughs> or, or if I had to really counsel somebody in a, in a session, I, I think I'd be the one who would throw the Kleenex box at them and say, stop your whining. So I, that, that never would have panned out. I had aspirations to be an actor on Broadway, big, big musical theater lover, um, loved music of all kinds. So I wanted to go to New York and, uh, you know, be an actor. So I went to drama school in New York. You got to be in the right place at the right time. I, I People say, how did you get into business? I say, well, one is luck. But two is you got to sort of make that luck, that cliche. And you got to be in the right place. You can't, you can't aspire to, at least back in that time, you can't sit in your home in Birmingham, Alabama and hope to make it in the, in the showbiz. So I went to New York and went to drama school and waited tables and did whatever I had to do to keep myself alive and afloat. And just a lucky chance encounter with the man who dreamed up MTV, Bob Pittman. Now, a, how did that happen? I mean, how did, yeah. you know, did he know of you? And a real quick, before we go into that, were you in the fashion video by David Boy before yeah. you were, no, I know you were before you were a VJ or yeah. when you were a VJ? 
Yeah, it was about four months before. I mean, this was another in my series of daily, you know, waiting tables at night and doing cattle calls and auditions during the day. I went to a cattle call for a video, which people didn't really know what that was. We saw them on Midnight Special, you know, and various other TV shows. Every so often, we'd see a music video. In fact, when you watch Midnight Special and Wolfman Jack would say, Paul McCartney's coming up tonight, you go, yay, and then... Paul McCartney would show up in a video and say, hey, I'm sorry I can't be there, but here's my video. So videos represented disappointment, that it wasn't really live. So uh, I got a cattle call, went and found out when I was doing my profile with the casting director, you know, turn left, turn right, state your name, get out of here. That uh, it was a David Bowie video, and I was a huge Bowie fan. Did not know the song yet, because no one had heard it. The album hadn't come out yet. So I showed up, I got cast. I was one of six... Uh, people in a small nucleus dance kind of group that were the focus of the video. And I was the one white kid, the blonde haired kid, everybody. I was the token, you know, blonde haired white kid and, uh, got to meet David Bowie over three days of work. I paid 50 bucks a day, uh, which was pretty good for a struggling actor in New York shot all over, uh, downtown Manhattan and Midwest and Midtown and got to meet the thin white Duke. I mean, Oh my God, little did I know four months later, I would get a job on a channel that would play that video relentlessly. It was just total kismet. I, I always, I always think about that because you know you're on there and you're seeing a video you're in. You're in. When I lived in LA, I knew a guy who was in a NFL dot uh, com uh, NFL Network commercial, but it wasn't union, so he still was waiting. He was still bartending, and people would go to watch football and they'd watch the TV and they see him. And they're like, "Hey, that that guy looks just like you," and it's like, "Holy, holy crap, it is you." For you, it, it must have been weird when you would sit there and say, this video, you know, fashion, and you're thinking, people are probably going to say, man, that guy looks just like Alan Hunter. I did get a little bit of that. I, you know, of course, I, I made certain to point that out all the time every time I played the song or the video. I would say, look for me. I think we, we I had some unofficial, uh, you know, if you, if you pick out who I am. I appear two or three times in different characters, so I say, if you pick me out, then you win something, but I never did send anybody to anybody. <laughs> it was a total chance encounter. I was uh, I went to school in Jackson, Mississippi, born and raised in Birmingham. Went to school in Jackson, Mississippi. My, uh, my, my girlfriend and my wife at the time, uh, her family, her father knew Bob Pittman's father. They were both Methodist ministers in the South, out of Mississippi. And while in New York, um, we went to a way up north in Mississippi picnic. All, every state had picnics in the park. You know, whether you were from Oklahoma or California or New York, you had a, a picnic in the park. Well, Mississippi's picnic was on, you know, day in June or something. And uh, Bob Pittman came to the picnic. My wife, who knew him, introduced me to him. And um, he said he was working on some cable thing a show for videos and i said well i'm a i'm a struggling actor bartending you know at the magic pan and oh by the way i was in a music video for david bowie and he said well that's pretty cool and we said nothing more i said nice to meet you bob good luck with that whatever the hell you're talking about it wasn't on at the time and i got a call two days later from the executive producer who said bob Pittman bumped into you thinks you should come in and audition for this host of a music television show and who knew? I didn't know anything about it. Nobody did. So I went in. Operation seemed to be happening. It was in the throes of getting itself together about two months before. I did three horrible auditions uh, within about a week. They kept calling me back, and I kept going, I, was, I suck. You can't hire me. <laughs> but Bob was my champion. And behind the scenes, apparently, he was saying, that's your fifth VJ, and he'll improve. He'll get better. And so that I guess I did. So when you got hired, what was the the prep time? What were they saying? What were they saying to you when it came to the job description? I mean, it sounds, there wasn't really VJs before then. So it sounds like, you know, a VJ, and if you say, well, it was like a DJ, and it was nothing like a VJ because you guys had to look good. You had to look in the camera. You had to deliver it. A DJ, if you screw up, people aren't going, oh, you know, what did, how did they prep you and get you prepared? Well, it was like going to uh, boot camp, for sure. I mean, I was hired three weeks prior to the launch. Martha Quinn had been hired just a few days earlier than I. Everybody else had been on board. Uh, JJ was on board, Mark, for maybe a month or two. So they had all been getting prepped, and they had been rehearsing on the stage. 
I mean, you gotta you gotta understand this thing was so seated the pants. They had a little studio in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, the only people that knew what they were doing were the TV production people, the cameraman and the and the uh, New York uh, labor union prop guys. They knew what they were doing, but nobody else did. The young producers and the writers uh, putting on the show, the content. We'd never done this before. So I came on the set. They said, here's a three-ring binder of every rock band out there. Now go study. Uh, and during the day, I would rehearse. We would go through uh, teleprompter reading, the news, fake news, real news. I would do uh, mock interviews with the producers. Um, all the while, I was given $500 by the executive producer to go buy myself some clothes, <laughs> literally. And I thought, 500 bucks. Man, I'm rich. I bought 50 pairs of pants and tennis shoes and shirts, and Mark went out and bought two shirts at a rich place on the Upper West Side for 500 bucks. That was our difference. But um, it was just massive uh, activity, literally people painting the set behind you and erecting it while you rehearsed. And then at night, I would go and bartend at the Magic Pan on 6th Avenue and 57th Street. At night, I would go and bartend, and by day, I would come and and rehearse for what was kind of, it felt like a theatrical show. And I thought, well, it's kind of like Broadway, sets being built and I'm rehearsing, albeit just looking into the camera. And um, uh, it, it, it didn't dawn on me that this thing was actually gonna be real. I thought, you know, a couple, three weeks, I could have paid check out of it. <laughs> thing folds before it starts, I'm good. So no one had any idea, really. We knew there's some money behind it with Warner Amex and, uh, you know, there was, there was at least a little time on the clock paid for, but no one could have conceived how it would have gone from there for sure. It was a frantic, hectic three weeks for me, and it was amazing. Now, when it first started, that first time you were on air, you know, you're a guy who, you were on the, in the video, video for Bowie, and you've been in different stuff, but here it's just you. It's the camera, and I know you practiced. Were you nervous, and what, what were your expectations of how many people may have been watching did that even cross into your mind well you know we may have known the numbers the cable access or homes past i think as they called it mtv was probably in no more than about two and a half million homes when it started up because the whole dealio with early cable was that cable had a universe that was connected by two or three companies and that total universe i don't know might have been 20 30 million people but any individual station or channel or show would have only had a small fraction of that. So the cable operator, in the case this was MTV, their job was to go to the cable companies all around the country and say, please carry us. Well, in the beginning, that didn't happen at all. So, you know, I didn't know what two and a half million people watching meant. Uh, my slot came on in the early morning hours. I figured no one was watching anyway. And they put me on the, time, the night slot so that I wouldn't suck bad for the primetime people. Um, but uh, of course I was nervous. I mean, talking into an inanimate camera lens that just stares at you. The only feedback I had were either the laughter from the producers and the crew, like you hear in a local TV station when the weatherman cracks a joke and everybody giggles. It was kind of funny. Uh, more, I just heard a lot of sighing, like, oh, my God, this guy's bombing. So for me to talk extemporaneously to a camera was different than I'd ever done. I needed a script, you know. I was, wanted to be an actor boy. With a slight Southern Shakespearean accent. That's what I wanted to do. Hit the boards for the bard. But uh, it took me a while. I, and I didn't really get into my rhythm until a couple of months into the gig, really. I mean, the first few months were really difficult for me to catch my my rhythm. And, uh, you know, eventually I finally did. So you caught your rhythm a few months in. And that's just it's getting bigger. I mean, you think about it. You know, I, I watched the documentary recently on uh, A and E, uh, yeah, yeah. and it showed your audition. Yeah. It showed your audition tape, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was it, man. But, who would hire? Who would hire that guy? <laughs> when did you know that the station for you personally was getting traction? And when did you feel comfortable enough to leave that bartending job? Yeah, that's easy. Uh, I mean, the first a couple of months were a struggle for me. I would come home every day and, and, and say to my wife at the time that I just, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what it means to talk to a camera. And, and, and again, I relied on the camera guy that we became close to laugh at my jokes and be funny. But I, I felt sort of stiff reading teleprompters. After a while, they, they understood that, that they needed to let us just kind of rap and, and do our thing and let me be a little bit more of the court jester that I felt 
was was me, irreverent and fun and physical. And uh, as I began to explore that with the help of one producer in particular who said to me, I want you to do in front of the camera what you do in the break room. You tell jokes, you cut up, you have fun. Uh, and that style is perfect for the interstitial breaks that we're doing in between these crazy videos. We need your style of energy. Mark was the authoritarian. you know. He was the credible jock, the handsome dude. JJ was the, the patron of us all. Martha was cute and bubbly and well-spoken. And Nina was the, the sexy gal. What was I supposed to do? Be the boy next door who would you know, be irreverent and do cartwheels into the camera. So a couple of months into it, I started loosening up. Uh, as Mark puts it, uh, one day I got these props on set there were little finger puppets little rock and roll finger puppets and i went and got a tennis racket and i would hit those little finger puppets across the set <laughs> and i would just whack them every segment i'd come out and whack a finger puppet it was stupid but it was funny and mark says he was sitting in the green room thinking what is this who is this clown and why does he have this job well as it turned out that starting that was starting to have some uh, resonance with the audience they liked my goofy kind of fun uh uninhibited style because i wasn't a stiff anchor dude just reading the news and when i started about three or four or five months into it started to feel that rhythm i started feeling comfortable i could talk about the music and and have fun on the set and and be kind of interesting glue between this craziness that's when it really started rocking for me to your question we had no clue how this thing was coming off to the bigger world MTV was not in Manhattan, wasn't in the major markets for the first year, as the documentary showed. So we would wander the streets of Manhattan after the gig. No one would know who we were. And we went about our lives. And I bartended for the first almost two months. I would do MTV during the day and go bartend at night. And the reason I quit is because I'm making a daiquiri for a dude at the bar who's from New Jersey. And he's looking at me sideways the whole time getting drunker <laughs> and he starts to snap his finger and do this and it didn't dawn on me that he was recognizing me he said you look like that guy on this new music thing what you what's your name mark mark goodman <laughs> said, no. name's alan hunter oh and you watch mtv he said yeah that's it you're the guy and then he couldn't figure out for the life of him why i was his bartender and i went home that night and told my wife i guess it's time for me to quit I think I can give the the job up because I'm not going to bartend while people are sitting there recognizing me. I know that would be the worst. Now, now, when did you start to get to interview musicians? Because you know you had so much, you had so much influence this station on pe making people. I was talking to Phil Collin from uh, Def Leppard, and he said yeah. how they already had the burst of videos, but when the videos started playing, yeah. everyone started just blowing up when do they let you start interviewing musicians and were who were some of the ones that you really enjoyed talking with yeah that happened fairly early on and obviously they they doled out the interviews that were appropriate for the jock i mean mark goodman and jj probably got the heavier hitters like pete townsend and the who or artists that had been established that now had some videos on there um, because they had more credibility and they, they were used to that journalistic approach. Um, but what was funny is that early on, you know, we started to become uh, more um, known or were more known than a lot of the bands that started showing up. U2 was nobody in 1981, but we played a couple of their videos. I got to interview Bono and the Edge uh first that was probably one of my earlier videos them and the psychedelic furs and I, I was more of the new wave kind of guy i liked the younger bands but it made sense for me to interview them because they weren't heavyweights but i remember my interview with um, the u2 guys started off with me saying hey i have with me today the edge and bono <laughs> and they both laughed and laughed and the edge kept saying bono bono <laughs> And I was like, Bono, of course. I was so I was nervous, so I I mispronounced Bowie one time when it was Bo. But but the thing was is that they were happy to be on MTV because no one knew who they were. And uh, and I was kind of an unknown. So we were on equal territory when I started interviewing some of those early bands during those early years. And so I kind of grew up with them and, and it gave me a chance to get my feet underneath me. I started I grew into the interview process really 
enjoyed it, uh, especially with the younger bands. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and, and that was part of the gig, and, and it was fun. Now, what was it like for you guys to go to concerts? Because as the bands are breaking, they're all associated with MTV. I'm sure you guys got the backstage class, you, you're chilling Not out. Not in the beginning, we didn't. How, uh, how did they treat you in the beginning when you went to concerts? Well, again, uh, the first few months, of it, the first half year of MTV, I mean, it was an unknown entity. So we had a video catalog that was pretty slim, under 200, because no one was making videos. No one knew this was the way to promote your, your music. The record companies started catching on because they, and here's how MTV really rolled out in terms of how the artist and the record company started understanding what a powerhouse MTV was. Months into it, the local record store would get a kid coming in saying, hey, I want this new U2 record. And the record store guy would say, who's U2? Well, I saw them on this cable thing called MTV. So the record company guy or the record store owner would, you know, try to track down War or October from U2 and get it in stock. So as kids started coming in in middle America to ask for the Stray Cats and Duran Duran music they didn't carry because Top 40 Radio wasn't playing it, they started carrying it. Um, so we began to be seen by the record companies, you know, half a year into it as a real, we were selling albums. And that's why a year into MTV's existence, um, the major markets started carrying MTV in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. Because of that campaign, I want my MTV. You remember when Mick Jagger and Billy Idol and every major star on the planet were begged for for nothing to come and promote MTV. And the as you saw in the documentary, the phones rang off the hook, and kids were calling in for for their their cable company, and uh, that happened. Now, as as Manhattan gets it, and everywhere is getting it, you have to start getting recognized a lot more, just because as it it's not like it's not like people sit there and watch would watch an hour of MTV. I mean, we would sit there and hang yeah. out in our friend's uh-huh. basement, drinking beers, watching it. And, yeah. and yeah. when how was things starting to change for you when you started getting recognized? And did most people like you because you were likable, or did some people think that you were the court jester and would, would get would try to one up you? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, everybody has their detractors and their supporters. I mean, I like the fans that like me. Let me put it that way. And I'm sure that there's a ton out there, metalheads, who think I'm a, a nerd jerk. I don't care. They they liked and loved and hated Mark Goodman. And they, you know, all, I, I think the only one who's universally beloved might have been Martha, but I'm sure she had her detractors as well. We had a fair amount of anonymity walking the streets of New York in our daily lives up till you know six, seven months into it. New York is a pretty um, is a hotbed, is a melting pot, so you get people from all over, and you get the bridge and tunnel crowd on a Friday night from Jersey or Long Island, you can bet if we were in a club that night, we were recognized. We used to go to shows at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Martha Quinn tells the story of how uh, we would all decide to go see Springsteen or something at the Meadowlands. And MTV early on would not provide us with cars or limos, really. They did later. But in the beginning, we had to figure out how to get out there. Martha would rent a car from a place called Rent-A-Wreck, which rented used <laughs> autos for cheap. And she would come around. We were, I was living midtown. Uh, Mark was uptown, and I think uh, Martha was downtown. She would come and pick us up, and we'd all go drive out to the Meadowlands and go to see the show. And we'd get out of the car, and people in the parking lot would go, you know, when it's, all, when it's three or four of us in a gaggle, that's hard to miss. You could maybe miss me in a crowd but mark and martha and nina and me getting out of a car people freaked out it was like oh my god this is the vjs and we thought early on well, that's pretty weird people are actually watching this and then they go why are you in a crappy car <laughs> that didn't make sense but it was actually part of the charm i think that we seem like regular folk you know we seem down to earth people were related to us because i think we related to them we were not movie stars we were not rock stars we were in everybody's life, as you say, all day long, 24-7, there we were. So we were like people's friends, and they treated us like that. Now, as the station gets bigger, and people find out, the music industry finds out that, you know, videos are the way to go. I'm sure your book went from, I mean, your, the, the book of videos went from 200 to more and more. When you VJ'd, would you have a 
say in what you would play? Like, if you said you like New Wave, could you say, you know what, I really want to play the Psychedelic Furs or this? Or did they sit there and say, okay, Alan, here's what you're going to play, and here's what we're going to do it? Yeah, the latter. We had little say in the programming of the channel. I mean, early on, we had a place on the committee that would screen new videos. But to be honest, we didn't have that much time to do that. There really were, it was a separation and division of jobs. We're not a local radio DJ spinning tunes on progressive radio. Um, There was an absolute programmed um, nature to the whole thing. Early on, there weren't a lot of videos, so we just played everything that was handed to us that met the small definition of rock and roll. But we, after a while, it would have made sense for us to be part of those programming meetings. There were occasions when there was a song that came out that we might have been asked about, what do you guys think? Would it be this one or that one? But for the most part, it was a deal between the record company and the programming executives. It really was, this is the video you're getting. This is the one we're going to hand over to you. And at some point, of course, MTV started demanding certain things. You can't show that in the video. You know, as their power grew, there was a little bit of censorship and there was some pushback from the record company. So there was a, we're the only game in town, you know, so we can say, take the, take the Billy Idol sex out of the, the video or we're not showing it. And they would probably have to abide by that. Uh, but in terms of the programming, we had a sheet every day. My job was to look and see where my name came between you two and the Rolling Stones and then have something relevant to say about it, which is fine by me. I mean, the thing really did have a, the rotations and the programming. There was no, not, not like in radio where there's a, um, a consultant that's hired, you know, that's maybe a syndicated consultant and all the radio stations are playing the same thing. This is MTV, the only game in town. So our consultants was our team. Um, and some of the producers that worked with us on the floor might also have been a part of that that programming meeting. But for the most part, it was uh, they they started screening. You know, after a while, hundreds of videos every week that were flooding in after year two, after year one, really. That they had to call through and call it down to the top twenty that could start airing in rotation that week. So it was a heavy load when you're the only game in town, and and we understood that it was no big deal. Now. Did it was it fascinating to you for the fact that you were there from the beginning? Like if you look at the early, uh, like I ran by Flock of Seagulls, the production quality is not the best. I think Mike said he bought the blouse at a store. Like they said, go get something. For you being there from the beginning and then seeing from that to to a video that's just theatrical, and what was going through your mind? Because were you sitting there going, this this is unbelievable? Because things are going from basic to, you know, I know David Fincher directed a Hooters video. I know different people were directing stuff. As a man watching that, what was going through your mind in just the growth and the production value? Well, it was an evolution thing for sure, but early on you had people who knew the, 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 the visual medium very well. David Bowie came on with Ashes to Ashes and Fashion, and he was well aware of television imagery. As were the Brits in general. The Brits, uh, because they had shows like Top of the Pops, primarily in the 70s. Uh, Brits grew up on the visual media. The Beatles, you know, early promotional videos and movies from the Beatles taught them what the image was all about. Americans were somewhat naive to that part of the quotient. They were used to putting out an album with a picture on the cover and going to promote that album in concerts. Kevin Cronin has the story, as many other artists do, of... uh, uh, great anonymity after a show at a big arena in middle America, going from the backstage to the bus or the hotel, just walking down the street, no problem. The first week the MTV uh, video started playing, they could not do that anymore. So the impact that you heard from Pat Benatar, she said the same thing. week or two into our videos playing on MTV, we couldn't walk the streets anymore. But the sophistication of the videos, you know, varied. Um, Billy Joel had some of the first high production videos that cost a quarter of a million dollars. That was huge back in the day for Allentown and Pressure. Those were directed by Russell Mulcahy. So some of the stars of the video age early on were the directors. David Fincher came on mid to latter part of the the 80s. Uh, But Russell Mulcahy, Julian Temple, these types started to become stars themselves. One, as the budget started increasing. If you were a young 
band like you know Flock of Seagulls, you had no money, so you had to put cellophane on the walls <laughs> and do a cheesy video. But the funny thing about it is that the cheap, the the low quality, you know, fish heads, Barnes and Barnes, or Blotto, or the, the dopey videos were had just as much stature, I think, as the high production uh, videos because the nature of the the artist is what drove the video. If you were selling albums like Michael Jackson, you could spend a lot of money on your videos. But if you couldn't, it, it kind of was just as cool. Late at night, who cares what the Hooters video really looks like? And and the ones that, uh, you know, for me, Rod Stewart did videos that were not conceptual. They were just sort of the narrative of the song. If he sings about, I'm standing in the rain, smoking a cigarette, at a lamppost thinking about how much I love you. That's exactly what the video showed on like a cheesy backstage at Universal Studios Hollywood. But the ones that were like Shock the Monkey from Peter Gabriel, how groundbreaking were those? That was one of my favorite videos because I felt it was a great interpretation of the song but had its own style. Once in a Lifetime from Talking Heads. That was a simple green screen with David Byrne doing goofy stuff in front of stock footage. And that was that's still one of my favorite videos. So they were all the beautiful thing about it is they were all over the place, and it all worked in the context of each other. Now, what was it for you like when you would go to clubs? What was the party scene like in the eighties? Because I went to college, I high school and college in the eighties, and I know it was it was a different time. The stuff it's and I tell people, younger people, I go the eighty like I talk to people who went to my college and like we used to have a pub on campus. I said things you know right in the middle of classrooms, like not in class. But what was it like for you guys to go out? Because you sort of, you were somewhat the toast of the town when you think about it. I'm sure you never wanted to admit that, but you guys were the music industry. I mean, people relied on you and trusted you. Even though you didn't pick the videos, they trusted you. I'm sure if someone saw a split ends video they didn't like, they'd be like, what's wrong with Alan Hunter? But people, people would sit there. What was it like for you guys when you went out after after the renter wreck, when things started getting big, and you were the toast of the town? Well, it was a slow burn. We we did not appear on a hit sitcom that was an overnight sensation. We didn't appear to 20 million people right from the start. It was a slow burn. started off at 2.5 million, and, and every day we would gather more. Around year one, when it got into all of the major markets, that's when we started getting pretty decent seats at restaurants. Uh, and then in year two, we were starting to become really established. And yeah, everybody knew us. The phenomenon of MTV and our weird celebrity, and all five of us believe we have a sort of a very middle ground celebrity, uh, kind of unique. Uh, again, we were not movie stars. We weren't television stars. We sure as hell were not making the money those people made. But the recognizability factor we all had was really high because everybody watched MTV. I mean everybody. It didn't matter what walk of life. Nina and I have a story of walking down the street after about a year. And um, a person who appeared to be homeless um, said, Yo, Blackwood! <laughs> it's like, how in the world did that person have cable last month before hard times set in? And they remember Nina. Uh, an old lady one time almost kicked me in the shin and said, play more Van Halen. <laughs> so the demographic of the channel was really wide. You know, kids to 80 years old, there was no other game in town. MTV was always on. So we were recognized. Not always did they know my name, but if we were standing in a line at a club to get in. And by the way, JJ was the master of this. He was nightclub guy. In fact, there are many times I came up to a bouncer at a, at a, at a late night club after a show and said, uh, you know, I, I, I always hoped that maybe they'd recognize. And I certainly wouldn't sit there going, don't you recognize me? Because who needs who needs the rejection? No, get the fuck off the step, dude. But I would say, J.J. Uh, Jackson, I'm a friend. Of, oh, J.J., he's inside. Come on in. So he was my calling card. But w no doubt we had cachet. In the greatest city in the world, again, we were not mega Tom Cruise superstars. And we I wasn't throwing out $100 bills out of limos. I was pretty humble about my life. But we, there were a lot of people from all walks of life who thought very fondly of Nina and JJ and Mark and Martha. And uh, we got into places uh, that maybe others couldn't. 
and that was pretty groovy. Now, when did you sit there and think there's a little hand next to you? <laughs> what are you doing, dude? I'm here. This is the new world of uh, of uh, pandemic that all of our work is done with dogs and kids and family members all around. I was wondering what the lights are Because he's turning on. I got a. This is my new studio, by the way. Uh, we just moved to Petaluma, and uh, I got a studio office, and I got disco lights in it for fun, and he likes coming into play. That's awesome. Now I was going to ask you as you're as you're doing as you're being a VJ, what. You're a young guy. You're doing well. What were you thinking was going to be your next step? Or did you think that you would, you know, because I know you started a production company and stuff like that. What did you think was going to be your next step? And or were you just saying, I'm here for the ride. We're going to see how long this lasts. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Mark and I looked at each other when Martha was let go about five and a half years into it, which was a surprise to all of us. We thought at that point the writing truly was on the wall. We knew there would be an end to this thing. Five years into it was a long time. And that we stayed there that long was interesting. But, you know, five, five and a half years into it, Mark and I were the last to go after Nina and JJ and Martha looked at each other and said, you know, we can't be VJs forever. So I started plotting my Los Angeles move because the industry was kind of moving to the West Coast from New York. And I got an agent out there my last year, and I started kind of planning what would be next. I didn't know what it would be. Uh, what we didn't know is that, the, that we'd be so pigeonholed because what is, the, what is the one of five people, the only five people in the world that did what they did for six years do next? I actually got a gig with Disney. Uh, I went out to audition about two month, three months before I left to go to L.A., and got a job on a new video show they were doing for their channel called Videography, Vide, Videopolis. And I got to go to Disneyland and, and do my thing. And they really dug me and I was hired. I was going to my wardrobe meeting in, a, in Hollywood. I was in the hotel room and my manager calls up and says, don't go to the meeting. Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't think you're, uh, you need to be the guy for the show. <laughs> he didn't know you'd been hired and he doesn't want the irreverence of MTV to be on the wholesome Disney. He was, he feared that I would be like I was on MTV. So I, I got canned. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, I got to figure out how, how I deal with that budget hole, you know, for the family. We didn't know. It was kind of a leap of faith. I, Mark and I had signed, he had signed and I had signed a three year deal at the end of our time there. I actually was uh, hired for another two or three years by Bob Pittman to to stay on and, and I had huge salary increases. And so I was set, but I wanted to leave so bad. I was burnt out after six years, so I opted not to uh, initiate my two more years on the contract because I thought I was going to go out and kill it in L.A. And in hindsight, I wish I had stayed on MTV for another year or two to really let things die down as it as it came to be i went to la and the writers went on strike about three months later and hollywood shut down for an entire year so i learned how to play golf and uh and commiserate with my out-of-work actor buddies at jerry's famous deli on sunset or on ventura and thought oh my god so it was it was tough it was tough to transition i think the again back to the odd place we all held in people's uh memories and in in the entertainment business at the time, I'd go to a casting audition for a commercial or a TV show. The casting director would freak out meeting me, and all my friend, uh, my pals have the same stories. Well, you're Mark Goodman. Oh my God! Oh, he's watching all the time. Would you sign this autograph for my girlfriend? And blah blah blah. They chat you up, and then it would then it would get down to business. All right, I need your profile. I need you to slate your name, and now read the copy. And thank you very much. Get out of here. And I was like, whoa, that is cruel. Didn't matter who you were. Now, how, how did you mentally deal with this? Because, you know, I've, I lived in L.A. for a long time. And, and you know how it is. They know you and they don't know you. And you're right. You do the slate and then it's say your line and they don't want to well, talk to you. It's your last gig. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what was going through your mind, though? Because you were at a level and you, you knew you were unhappy there. Was it just frustration, or were you getting really, were you getting depressed, or, or what was going through your mind to keep you going because you've done well? I think all of those things. <laughs> I was depressed.
was discouraged. I didn't really know what the game plan would be. Again, I, I moved out, and I'm not blaming it on the strike, but things changed in Hollywood. Movie stars did television. Television stars did commercials, and ex-VJs were somewhere in the middle. I hosted a bunch of reality shows for Fox, uh, like goofy, aren't people funny kind of reality shows, which I was doing on MTV towards my last year. I was doing a lot of the spring break stuff. I did a muck in America, so I was the man in the street guy. Or MTV, so that was a natural that I would do those kind of things. Probably four pilots for Fox, uh, Pure Insanity, Haywire, those kind of shows. Um, and and I, I thought that was kind of my lot in life was to to be that kind of host for a while, and I did those, and those kept me afloat. Um, but it was difficult, no doubt. I I tried my hand at getting back into acting, but I think I took the right course. I was never going to be Robert De Niro. I'd be a great Broadway. Uh, hoofer like Hugh Jackman not as handsome as that dude but I got a good voice and I dance and I missed my calling being on Broadway I really I love the theater so I actually started doing more local theater and uh, enjoyed the live theater aspect which I took a hiatus from for six seven years you know in a way MTV took me away from what I really should have done but a film star and all that I don't know I don't think so I think me being me is where my career went but it was hard to find a spot to pursue that in L.A. L.A. is cruel. Funny thing about L.A. is when you have a job, you drive down the street thinking life's uh, fabulous because, you know, you got a paycheck coming in in a week. When you don't have a job, L.A. is mean, and there you are alone in your car. I mean, it's, New York is different. New York on a bad and good day still treats you the same. You know, who are you? We're going to mess with you. Motions on the sleeve. If you feel terrible, at least you got to get out and interface with people on the streets of New York and L.A., you're, you're alone with your dark thoughts. <laughs> it's true. Now, how did you start your production company? What made, what made you go in that direction? I know you did some production, I believe, with your brothers. And did, yeah. you, did you move back to Alabama to start that? Yeah, I did. I mean, after six years of fighting the good fight in L.A., I, just, I was tired of, again, mine was a cliche story. When, when you feel you're not in control and you're just waiting on your agent to call you up or not, um, I didn't, that's not what I wanted to pursue. So I started looking back to my home territory. Uh, the independent film world began to kind of um, bubble under in the early to mid 90s. And my brother, my old brother, was a photographer, and we decided that maybe we would start a company together. And I started thinking maybe I'm going to move. And I had two kids at the time, and I didn't want them to live in LA uh, with reduced lung capacity because of the smog and the traffic. And I just didn't like the lifestyle anymore. So I decided to take a real shift in my life and move back to my hometown of Birmingham, started this business with my brother and um, um, started a company called Hunter Films. We got into the independent film business. I didn't make a whole lot of money in it, but we made a lot of really good films, I think, and started a film festival. So I, I, I did what people do at various times in their life. I got away from the, the business of me and my talent and how can I go and hawk my talent. And then I said, I'm just going to go make things. And, uh, and see if people will respond to it and making movies or commercials. We had a production company that did commercials. And, and uh, I got invested in, in my, my town. Birmingham in the mid-90s needed help from a PR standpoint. I was the, the boy done good returned, so I was a little bit of an enigma in my town. Um, but I got involved socially. I got on the board of uh, various nonprofits to help uh, AIDS organizations. Um, um, I, I started a film festival in the late 90s to bring film people. I got involved with the government of the state and to, to bring a film, uh, uh, the film production business into the state. So I did a lot of things that were very satisfying, nothing to do with making money. But funny enough, my career in L.A. picked up when I left L.A. I, I was driving the family out of town to go back to Birmingham, like like the reverse Clampets moving away from Beverly Hills. <laughs> had crap all over the car and in it and the dogs and the kids. I got a call from my agent who said, uh, Time Life wants you to do a big infomercial. It's going to be tons of money. And I was like, now that I'm driving away? <laughs> but it felt good. I went back home, flew out to L.A., did the gig, made a lot of money. And so that was the universe saying, yeah, leave it alone for a while and we'll come back to you. Now, in some, in one time, in the past, I don't know, it's eight, nine years, ten years, the 80s, we said the 80s started coming back. 
Okay, yep. the 80s started becoming popular. Sirius is getting more popular. When the 80s start coming to back, are you sitting there going, you know what? I'm missing that a little bit. I mean, what was your transition back to radio? Did they say, hey, Alan, people miss you. We're doing the 80s. I know you you guys do, you know, there's different 80s shows. I know Nick Richards and Clive Farrington all hosted shows, and, and the 80s are so hot now. When did you feel that you would jump back into radio, and were you comfortable? Because you're never really in radio. When were you comfortable doing it? I didn't make a decision to jump back into it. It just kind of happened. I mean, my film company was at its nadir in the uh, 2005-ish. We were just starting to work on a small independent movie that we hoped to get to Sundance. So we were, I was very busy at the time uh, that I got a call from Sirius, which I didn't know what it was. I knew what XM radio was in the beginning because Bowie did those commercials. for them. I got a call from Kid Kelly who left messages on my office answering machine on my film company. And my assistant kept saying, you're getting this call from Kid Kelly from Sirius radio. I want you to call him up. Well, I get calls all the time from radio stations. Hey, we want you to come on uh, Zoo 100 on Tuesday. We're doing an 80s day. It's like, oh, yeah? Imagine that, an 80s day. So I didn't call him back. And a former friend executive at MTV who was working at Sirius called me up and said, Alan, you've got to take this guy's call. This is about Sirius Satellite Radio, and we want to offer you a job. And I was like, oh, okay. So I called up, did not know what it was. They sent me a radio that I could listen to for about a week because I, I just didn't know what the beast was, what a satellite radio mean. I listened to it for a week, understood it, and called the guy back and said, yeah, what do you want me to do? So it was a very part-time job. At the, he said, take you 20 minutes a day because I said, I have a company, and I'm doing a movie right now. Where am I going to do a radio show? We'll send you the package of the recording device in 20 minutes. You lay down some breaks. And uh, that's all you got to do. Turned out to be a lot more than 20 minutes a day. But he wanted, I, I actually helped him get in touch with Mark and Nina and Martha. And JJ was still alive at the time. And uh, they wanted all of us. I said, well, you know what? If all of us are in, that could be really cool. The power of Sirius getting all of us original VJs as a package kind of, you know, to come on board at once was really what made the 80s channel work. Uh, and it sounded good to me. It was Again, it was part-time. I'd do what i do back in the day, except it's just radio. That was a little tough for me to get used to, just a microphone, because I use my hands a lot. So uh, I, uh, I got into it. It was easy to do. It was part-time. J.J., of course, passed away before he could get on. But that was kind of like, wow, 20 years later, who would have thought we'd all be back together again, albeit on radio? And it was fun for a long time. I can't believe it's lasted 15 years. Um, and as the 80s has continued, it's probably the top two most listened to music channels uh, on the SiriusXM platform, which kind of makes sense. Now, what made you move back to the West Coast? Yeah. Did, what I mean, uh, did, did you stop your production company and it's, are you doing radio full time? What is what are you what's your what's going on now? What made you move back west? A, a good woman and a family. I, uh, I got married again 14, 13 years ago. I met a woman 14, 15 years ago. And uh, I was, I was kind of happily single with my two older children. And uh, while well, I was living in Birmingham for the most part. And I thought, well, this is fine. And then I bumped into somebody and um, we fell in love. We got married and we had two kids. The beauty about what I do for Sirius is that I can do it anywhere. So we were able to move from first from Birmingham. And I had started to downgrade my film company with my brother. We had kind of run the course, I think. Independent film business started getting very difficult six or seven years ago. It was hard to raise money. And now it's impossible to raise money, so I'm glad I'm out of it. Still enjoyed going to Sundance. I still enjoyed promoting the um, film festival, Sidewalk, by the way, in Birmingham, which is in its 21st year. Very proud of that. I'm now the chair emeritus, which that's like being in AARP magazine. Oh, they're calling me the old guy now. I'm like the Robert Redford of the Alabama Film Festival. Um, but I, I was kind of ready for a change as well, maybe to move out of Birmingham. I'd been there a decade and a half. And my wife went to school at Northwestern in Chicago. So we moved to Chicago uh, because I could. 
Sirius XM has been now the major thing that I do. And we were there for six years and moved to San Francisco last year because she got a job at a college out here as a professor. And so we have moved lock, stock, and barrel, just moved to Northern California. We're in Sonoma County uh, just as of two weeks ago. So um, I'm able to move around because I have the freedom to do that. I do the show in my jammies every day via satellite. It works. So it's a beautiful thing. Now, I know you've been in the, um, it's this, in the sand, 80s in the sand. Uh, yep. What What is that like? Because I know my friend just went on a rock and roll cruise and he yep. said it was, it's just insane. And it's just fun because everyone, you know, they dress up. There's like 70s night, 80s night. What is it like for you to see these people that have been listening to you and have known of you since 1981, 82? I mean, do you yep. feel a kinship to them? Is, is it just... Is it must be a great feeling. Sure, it's like old camp week. I mean, we started the first cruise five years ago, and I would never go on a boat, never went on a cruise, had no desire to. And when I was asked to come on with Mark and uh, Nina, Martha's not going on a boat. That's just not her thing. But when they told me how much they wanted to pay me, I said, I, sure, I'll go on a boat for that. Uh, I, had, I, was really, I, I was really scared. I took my son and my daughter, my oldest kids, along with me because my wife wouldn't go on a boat either. So they were my chaperones. And the first night we got there, I thought, well, this is okay. The boat was cool. We were in the dock and I was getting seasick even though we weren't moving. I thought, oh, no. I thought being trapped on board with two, 3,000 80s fans was going to be miserable on a boat in the ocean. No way to get off. Um, as it turned out, it was lovely, one, because it was, again, it was like old camp week. After a few years, these people come on these things religiously. They all know each other. they got Facebook groups. And they turned out to be really swell people. It was the same thing that I felt about my fans and our fans back in the day, is that we like them. They're, they're good folks. The people that come on these cruises and these uh, land events um, – they have to spend a little money to get to get there, so they're serious about their love of the '80s. And I kind of got sucked into their nostalgia and their love of the time. My first night, I'm saying hello with Mark and Nina. My daughter and son are in the audience. I'm cracking on everybody in the audience for getting for uh, getting up in these crazy '80s clothes. Oh, I can't believe you're serious, Mister. Oh, wow, that's some neon there, fella. And I was cracking on all of them because that's, that's what I do. And my daughter afterwards says, Dad, you can't be that irreverent. These people sincerely love you and Mark and Nina. They sincerely love the 80s. They're here for a good time because they love that decade. And this represents fond memories for them, the acts and you, and you're up there cracking on them. And that confuses them. <laughs> I said, wow, you're right. You're so right. So I... I got really sincere really quick, and the past few years have been really nice. I really look forward to going on these gigs because we meet up with old friends. They love getting stories from me and my pals, anecdotes here and there, but I don't know. It's it's like going back to camp every year. We all look forward to it. That We had to postpone this one or the next one in March. Really not good. So the next cruise is 2022. The next eighties in the sand event will be in Mexico. I think that's going on in October, November. But my my wife came on her first one. I'll say this lastly. She came on her first Butacana trip last year, and she was doing some research on these kinds of events for her doctoral research, like a scholarly academic look at people's um, experiential nostalgia events. And she was blown away and felt that it was incredible that these people invested so much money and energy and love into their love of a, of a decade, of a particular time in their lives in a genre of music. And she couldn't find any way to attack it, like it's silly or stupid or they wear funny clothes or they do twister games at night or watch 16 Candles for the 15th time. She thought it was lovely, and she felt the people were so sincere in their love of that time that it couldn't really happen with other decades. Can't do it with the 90s yet. Maybe right. you'll do it 
you know, in 20 years, I think this is a lovely time we're in as far as new music goes. I think contemporary music that's going on right now has so much heart in it uh, that people will, you know, one day maybe they'll dress up like Billie Eilish and enjoy that time. But there's, the, is there a better party feel good decade than the eighties? Not yet. And that's why it's so big. One last question for you. What do you think made the eighties so special? What, if you could pinpoint a few things. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a few things or just the zeitgeist of the time. I mean, kind of as a historian would do, Think post seventies, Vietnam War over in the mid seventies. The stress and strife uh, of that time is beginning to ebb as the decade began. There were certain places like New York City that were in the in the dumper. You know, they were they were going through some very difficult times. But I think people were ready for hope and change. I mean, as cliche as that sounds, the music that was coming out of Britain, uh, out of uh, across the pond, the new wave was kind of upbeat a lot of covers of some great 60s Motown songs from you know bands like uh, um, uh, Naked Eyes that people could relate to and it was an innocent time I mean all I can say was that it was fun it had a certain innocence about it some of the older artists like Bruce Springsteen or The Who or The Police who got their start in the late 70s they caught the vibe of the innocence and the fun of the music videos and people needed that in their lives. Reagan was there to preside over a decade of greed and, <laughs> and the meat generation and prosperity in America, whether you agreed with the politics or not. People felt like they were doing better. So I think it was timing. Post-Vietnam War, post-70s, into the innocence of the 80s, before the nihilism of the 90s started, and Wall Street really started to kick our butts. Uh, it was good, innocent fun, and I think that's why people's kids nowadays, 16-year-olds, sort of dig the sound of the 80s, and you notice a lot of contemporary artists, DJs, uh, artists, uh, the Killers the other day, I love that band, and they uh, did a version of Ice House's song, it was magic. So a lot of bands are going back and using those great old synth sounds, using the kind of beats of the time. Lastly, to me, the most beautiful part of the 80s, as it existed in that bubble of MTV, was that it was such a tolerant time. To me, it was a multicolored, 24-7 um, environment where you could have Whitesnake and Howard Jones and U2 and uh, Poison, Metal to New Wave, and everybody got along. Whether you hated Whitesnake, but you waited for that Thomas Dolby video to come along. And you, you'd find something about the video that you dug. But you sat there with your college friends in the dorm you know, lobby watching it, ragging on them, loving on them, and everybody got along. It's a tolerant time. Uh, what kid in the middle America who's gay wondered what his lot in life was because in Idaho he couldn't find any friends and he was ostracized. And there he sees Boy George and Culture Club on screen. Or he sees uh, 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 Simply Red. Um, he sees Madonna and he says, oh, I'm not alone. So that to me, it just represented all of that. Well, that's awesome, Alan. I want, I want wow. to thank, I, that was great. That's, that's a perfect way to close the show. That's like, wow. think, I want to thank you for coming on. I know you tweet a lot. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Tell everyone. Alan Hunter MTV. And the only reason I did the MTV part is because someone had already snatched up Alan Hunter several years ago. So my wife goes, really, you want to push that? And you're, you want to brag about that? I said, no, it's the only way to identify me. Now, do you have a set schedule for Sirius, or do they mix you guys up? No, I have a set. I'm on Sirius. I'm on primarily from 2 o'clock east in the afternoon to about 6. Then i got a couple of late night hours. We're all kind of spread out so they can get their bang uh, uh, for the buck out of us. Uh, Nina is prime. Mark's the early guy. He's the early morning guy. And I'm the midday. I'm the mid-afternoon guy. Nina's midday. So, yeah, set schedule on the 80s, and, I, and I'm on Classic Rewind Channel 25. So, people, classic, classic rock. check out Alan Hunter. Go follow him on Twitter. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find Absolutely. Over... My, my email is alan.hunter at SiriusXM.com. So, get in touch with him. Get in touch with me, cooper, coopertalk.net. 
uh, Twitter at Cooper Talk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.